This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Ellen Leebeater. Today, what makes a good swimmer? And you have to be competent in the sorts of surgical or drug type of therapy you've got to use. Well, competence in culturally is just as important and can be just as dangerous if you don't do it effectively. How cultural competency could help close the gap. Well, the key to improving your mental health might be floating around in your gut, according to new research. The research undertaken at the University of Technology, Sydney, is investigating the link between probiotics and mental health. Dr Lynette Roberts is leading the trial. Dr Roberts is a clinical psychologist and researcher in mental health at UTS. Producer Nina Koble spoke with Dr Roberts about her research and started off by asking what sparked her interest in probiotics. Yeah, so it was kind of random, to be honest. It was a couple of years ago. I remember going to this really interesting talk by this student at the University of New South Wales, and they were talking about some really cool stuff she was doing with rats. And they were stressing out the rats in this kind of, you know, stress model. And they found that when they gave them probiotics, it made them feel less stressed. So it was kind of really random and really kind of counterintuitive. And I'm like, that's, you know, so strange, but so cool. What's going on there? How could something like bacteria could change something like your stress. And when I started to do more research about mental health, I started to come back to that idea about, I guess, different ways of looking at mental health treatments and kind of more, I guess, novel ways of looking at treatments. And that's when I came back to the idea of, well, what about, could probiotics actually be a treatment for depression as well? Can you explain what probiotics are? Because it's a big part of what you're doing. And Mm. it just seems like quite a foreign concept to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely one of those buzzwords that we're kind of hearing all over the place, but what does it actually mean? So probiotics are just basically healthy bacteria. So it's good bacteria, it's beneficial, you need it in your body and you can eat it or drink it because it occurs naturally in products like yogurt. So anything fermented, so you can get it in like miso or kimchi, sauerkraut, soft cheeses. So it's just a naturally occurring thing that's really good for your body. So what will that look like then? Can you see people just taking, everybody taking probiotic supplements? Well, the funny thing is if you look at TV advertisements, I feel like a lot of companies have already jumped on this idea and ran with it. So we know in general, probiotics and a good diet, of course, is helpful for you. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily the case that we should all be, you know, running to the shops and buying probiotic supplementation, but definitely a well-grounded diet is going to be helpful regardless, right? Like, I mean, we know it's good for our mental health. We know it's good for our physical health. 
the question is, if you are depressed, will it actually work? as a treatment. So where are you in the stage of answering that question? Yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting research being done in this area and what we're specifically looking at is are probiotics helpful as a treatment for depression in humans? So there's been some really cool stuff coming out with animals that shows that if you, you know, depress a little mouse and then you give them probiotics, it actually cures their depression. So it's quite similar to how medication works, which was really cool and really interesting. And if you give probiotics to kind of healthy people like you and I that aren't actually depressed, it does help improve our well-being. So the next kind of logical step, and people are looking at it in different ways, is that if you have an actual psychiatric population with a depressive disorder, can you use it like a treatment? So is it similar to an antidepressant? Is it similar to psychological therapy? And we don't yet know the answer to that. So that's why it's really interesting. And we're running a trial now at the University of Technology, Sydney, trying to answer that question. So would the end result then be giving people supplements of probiotics as a kind of is it, is it preemptive yeah, or is, exactly. is it a cure? Yeah, so, so there's some research that shows you can do it preemptively and it does help improve your mood if you're already quite healthy. But we're actually, in a way, looking at it as a treatment right now. So people who are currently depressed, we're giving them probiotics and we're saying, does it you know, cure your depression? So are probiotics things that we just get from food anyway? Why do you need it as, yeah. as an extra supplement? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So we should get it from our food naturally if we have a really well-balanced you know, diet, high in fiber, high in you know, fermented products. But the reality is that most of us don't. So you know, if we're eating kind of a high-processed, a high-fatty, a high-sugar diet, we won't be getting it as naturally or it won't be, I guess, growing as well as it could be in our gut. The other thing that affects our gut are things like stress. So if you're stressed, that affects the level of good and bad bacteria, antibiotics, hormonal changes, traveling. So there's so much stuff that actually does disrupt the health of our gut. So yeah, so it's not happening as naturally as it, say, could have. How much of this, when we're talking about yeah. depression, how much of it actually is these for physical things like diet, yeah. like physical health, as opposed to just your mental state of being? No, you're absolutely right. So that's the hard thing about depression is that it's complex, right? So there's lots of things that cause it. So it could be your genetics, it could be the chemicals in your brain, it can be your environment, it could be psychology. So it's how you think about things, it's how you react to things. So because it's so complex and there's so many different causes, there's not going to be kind of one cure-all treatment. So we know that, you know, medications are helpful. We know psychological therapies are helpful. We know just in general, you know, your diet and your lifestyle and your sleep are helpful. So it's more that could probiotics be one more kind of novel component to that kind of multifaceted treatment. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind yeah. was that's really obvious. I'll eat yeah. well and then I'll be happy. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but how does this... <laughs> push further? Like what is the big yeah. difference with probiotics as opposed to just having that really healthy diet and physical yeah, exercise? Yeah. So what we've started to find out is how much your gut health really does actually affect your brain. And so that's quite a novel and almost kind of a crazy idea that has come out and the research is really starting to support that. So your gut actually directly as well as indirectly communicates with your brain. So keeping your gut healthy with you know, a good diet and good probiotics are really important. But if you don't have that, what happens is that it's like your gut gets leaky. So because the toxins in your gut, what happens is that they leak out into your bloodstream. And when they're there, they trigger all these systems in your body. So you've got this immune response, you've got your stress response. And that actually ends up affecting how your brain functions. So it actually directly affects the chemicals in your brain that are responsible for your mood. 
So this idea of, you know, toxins leaking out of our gut and affecting our mood is kind of crazy, but it looks like there's strong evidence to suggest that something like that's happening. So where the probiotics comes in is that the probiotics are kind of like plugging the holes in this leaky boat. So the probiotics keeps your gut really strong, really healthy and stops that leaking. And all of that helps decrease the inflammation. And so that decrease in stress, decrease in inflammation and improvement in mood, that's what's so cool and specific about the probiotics. And it's something that we never would have thought of a long time ago. It's only now that we're getting all these different, really interesting results with animals and cells and people that we're trying to put it all together and make sense of it. And it looks like maybe something like that's happening. When you say toxins, do you mean things like alcohol and caffeine and bad things or is it just... I mean, unhealthy foods in general. I mean, like bad bacteria. So, you know, bacteria could be helpful or unhelpful. So, if you don't have enough of the good bacteria, there's kind of the bad bacteria that's left, and those toxins, that's what's getting into your bloodstream. So, you don't have all the protective factors of the healthy gut that's kind of keeping it, processing it, and then kind of getting rid of it out of your body. And then your brain. Yeah obviously get yeah, the message that ex- things are wrong. Exactly. It's kind of, ex- yeah, that's exactly right. So it kind of, you know, the rest of your body is trying to sort out and kind of deal with these invaders because they're not supposed to be there, right? They're supposed to be in your gut. It's yeah. really freaky. There could be like a cure for depression. That concept blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I thought the same thing as well. I'm like, that's crazy. What do you mean, you know, probiotics could affect your mood? But um, th- there's a definite, you know, strong link between the health of your gut and your mental health. Dr. Lynette Roberts, clinical psychologist and researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking there with Nina Kopel. And if you would like to hear an extended version of that chat, you can head to our website, 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. The swimming at the Rio Olympics has been a source of highs and lows for Aussies this week. From Kyle Chalmers surprising everyone and winning gold in the 100-metre freestyle to the Campbell sisters missing out on a podium finish by a fingernail. But in a sport that comes down to the millisecond, what is it that makes a good swimmer? And will our speed keep improving in the pool? Dr Elaine Tor is from the Victorian Institute of Sport. She joined us from Rio and started off by explaining why Aussies are so fascinated by swimming. We're a uh, country surrounded by water, so a lot of kids, obviously, most kids have to learn how to swim as a safety thing. And then um, I think think it just progresses on from there. And um, I think it's because we have such a rich history at the Olympics that people just get inspired to, you know, compete at the highest level. So, for example, you know, you would have probably... You know, Kyle Chalmers was like probably 14 years old, you know, when he was watching the London Olympics, you know, and he probably, you know, got inspired and, um, you know, here he is today. And I think that that's just one of um, many, many stories that you'll hear about. And are swimmers born or made? You mentioned Kyle Chalmers. I understand he's got large hands and feet. Does that kind of, uh, the physical appearance, does that make a big difference in swimming? You're obviously born with, you know, sort of student certain genetics and certain anatomical features. And yes, you know, you can argue that Kyle has an um, advantage um, with the way he's built and the same with Mac Horton. But I think the swimming, swimming the way it is at the moment, having 
technical features that are, I guess, superior to others will only get you so far. And that's just how it will get you so far. And then I think the rest is um, in how good, how good technically you are and also how dedicated you are to training. Because the margins at the top uh, at the moment are, are really small. And, um, you know, we saw Matty Groves get a silver medal by 0.03 seconds. So... Um, it's really, really slim at the moment. This uh, Olympics has been quite interesting in that you've got Kyle Chalmers, who's just 18, and Michael Phelps, who's 31. What's a peak age for a swimmer? You know, it, it differs in, in, in male and female. I think girls tend to be faster at a, at a quicker age. You know, but Michael Phelps was very, very good at a very young age as well. And um, I, he's just um, an exception yeah. to all the rules, which is why he's um, still so good. But usually um, the peak age for swimming are between about, I guess, 17 and 22, I think, um, is is the average age of the Australian team at the moment. You mentioned that it's a milliseconds between, you know, gold, silver and bronze. What do you see the future of swimming coming down to when you're trying to make up those marginal gains? I think the future of swimming will come down to a really fine balance of training, training strategy, and uh, it will also come down to how technically well the swimmer is. And so um, in terms of death stroke, how efficient they are, travelling through the water. Can we keep breaking world records in swimming? Definitely, definitely. I think I think in swimming, I mean, there are some world records that are still um, exist from the super suit era, which are ridiculously fast. And, and you know, if you asked this question like four years ago, I would have said, no, nah, that, that's not possible. But I think the, the world record in swimming are, are more uh, are more obtainable than the ones, I guess, in athletics. You know, every year, um, new training strategies have developed, you know, new ways of, um, you know, physiological things have developed and new ways to analyse stroke and, and, and things like that are, are developed. Um, as technology progresses, so I, I don't see why you know, we can't continue to get you know, faster and faster. Elaine Tor from the Victorian Institute of Sport. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. The health disadvantages of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is much canvas. But could cultural competency hold a key in restoring the balance? Cultural competency is the attitudes and policies that allow systems, such as the healthcare system, to work effectively with people of other cultures. Juanita Sherwood from the University of Sydney and Liz Sullivan from UTS joined Nina Copel to discuss the importance of cultural competence. Hi, I'm Juanita Sherwood. I'm a Wiradjuri woman and Academic Director of the National Centre for Cultural Competence at Sydney University. Hello, my name's Liz Sullivan and I'm a Professor of Public Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. What is cultural competency? Well, that's a big question. And cultural competency is basically really about providing care to people, to all people, equitably, and ensuring that you're respectful of their culture and 
adapting your services to meet the needs of cultural diversity. I want to ask you, Professor Sherwood, about your experiences and what sort of drove you to go into this area in the first place and what need you saw in the in the community and in health practice. I think I've, I've been working in Aboriginal health for the last 30-something mm. years and I think there's been many, many, many times and opportunities that have come that have made me appreciate that people aren't being respectful of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in health services and that's had major implications on people's health and wellbeing. We've all worked in this space and we've experienced in our own work as health service providers and as family members and as patients ourselves the lack of cultural respect and strong racism in health services. So this is why cultural competency is vital because people die if we're not culturally competent. Professor Sullivan, has this been some of the things that you've been confronting in your research and some of the things you've had to think about through the work that you've been doing as well? Yes, and you know I've had um, the privilege to work with Juanita uh, over many years now and to partner and collaborate with her and really to learn every day, I think, more about the issues and, and see more of the issues in terms of the lack of culturally competent healthcare that we offer. And I think that there is enormous inequity still in the access to health services and in us strengthening health services so that communities are happy to access them. Now that you've brought up that idea of communities, is this an issue of access as well? Is this in inability to, to access healthcare one of the things that fits into to this? Or is there different access being to be had in different communities in Australia? Is that where the problem's coming from? It's multidimensional. Mm. And mm. access, I mean, basic access to a service can be totally shut down by you walking into a medical s- s- surgery and being growled at by the receptionist. And that can be enough to, if someone who's not feeling great that day, oh my God, why, why am I even thinking I can talk, talk to anybody about my problems? That's enough to shut someone down. But you can go into a hospital situation, people are already, I, I was just talking to someone about this today, I can remember when I was nursing, um, this neurosurgeon decided, because this Aboriginal woman was an Aboriginal woman, that she had to lie. Um, so he told everybody that they could not believe her because she was an Aboriginal woman. And this was some myth he'd been told, and it informed the way he practised medicine and informed the way he talked to other people about how we cared for this patient, which was highly problematic. Is this an issue of selectivity in research as well? Are health issues not being addressed because people aren't interested in looking into the the health concerns of Indigenous people in Australia? Or is the research happening without taking on their interests into, into mind? There's good research happening with Aboriginal people. It's governments who don't fund the, the out, good outcomes of that good research. I think there's some... The last 15, 20 years, there's been some great Indigenous research with Aboriginal communities. And the only way you're going to have good research is if you work with Aboriginal communities. And the only way you're going to have good policy is if you work with Aboriginal communities. And we've been watching governments turn policy round and round and round without involving Aboriginal communities. 
and it's been destructive and negative. So something that you've brought up already is this idea of women in prison. I know it's an area that both of you are researching and both of you are looking at. So how does cultural competency and health fit into the way we think about people in prison? What's the link there? It's the link to everything. I mean, being able to respect somebody immediately gives you an opportunity to have access. If I made you feel that I didn't respect you, would you want to talk to me? So that's the very basis of trying to set up a relationship between myself and a health provider, you know, and a client. And if you're feeling this person's looking at me the wrong way, is giving me the dirty look, I know that that look. I mean, I watch it in classrooms where people stick their arms across and I I see that look. And I can, I mean, we can smell it 200 miles away almost. And people pick that up very clearly because they're used to it. And so people can say straight away whether they can trust you and share and build and talk to you around their health issues or not. What strikes me about that, though, is it's hard. I mean, how do you teach someone that their look is that powerful? Can you train people in, in, in that type of basic human interaction? Well, it's not about looking. It's about being open. I suspect what we really need to be thinking about is going back and getting people to become a bit more open-minded and realise that there's not one culture that runs health, which is hard for health professionals to consider, and that there's many ways of knowing health, and that other ways of other cultures have different ways, including Indigenous Australians, but every other culture has their way of looking at health that needs to be respected. And so health services need to adapt their ap- approach to meet the needs of people that they're, they're working with. And they're funded to do that. We've, we've talked a lot about these big ideas about what's culture and what how we relate to other people. In a day-to-day life, though, um, someone who's presenting to their, their doctor for you know a normal medical condition, is this something that's really playing out in a GP every day around Australia? It should be. It should be something that you know a doctor should be saying, is it okay for me to talk to you? Or would your family like to be in here with this consultation with you? Um, a lot of communities believe that it's really important to have the family, and especially if the, the, the person who is ill, they don't necessarily have all the nows to be able to answer all the questions that the doctor wants, and it provides a really solid history. And I guess the history-taking is probably a history-taking with an open mind and appreciating, and this is what is difficult, is that you what you see in front of you is not necessarily, you won't have the context for it because you don't have enough information. So it does require a bit of reading. It does require provide, you know, you have a big Aboriginal population clientele, do some reading in this area. You have a big Muslim population clientele, do some reading in this space. Build up your knowledge. You have to be competent in the sorts of surgical or drug type of therapy you've got to use. Well, competence in culturally is just as important and can be just as dangerous if you don't do it effectively. We need a Sherwood and Liz Sullivan speaking there to Nina Copel about cultural competence. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. 
You can also tweet us at 2SER. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Leaveter. See you next week for more.